Hello and welcome to the Women's Energy Council podcast, where we explore lessons and advice from some of the most senior energy executives, focusing on transformational leadership. I'm your host, Emma Shul. On this month's podcast, I was joined by Tessa Davis, partner at Morrison & Forster. Tessa is an internationally recognized finance lawyer based in Singapore, who focuses her practice on the development, multi-source financing and acquisition of energy and infrastructure projects, particularly oil and gas, renewable and conventional power projects. During her 20 years in practice, Tessa has lived and practiced in New York, London and Asia and has a proven track record of leading multi-billion dollar transactions in the Americas, Europe, the Middle East and across Southeast Asia. Tessa begins the episode by explaining it was her love of politics and global affairs that encouraged her to look to the energy industry when beginning her career. As is the case for many energy professionals, the excitement of international travel and having a stake in current affairs led Tessa to the sector. Now, having worked across several different continents, she has had the opportunity to experience life in various cultures and learn to manage the complexities this brings in doing business. Her experiences provide listeners with several examples of what not to do when it comes to supporting women through these complexities. However, I hope for the women themselves listening, it shows the best thing to do to succeed in this sector is to be yourself. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone, to our next episode of the Women's Energy Council podcast. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Tessa Davis, who is a partner at the Singapore office of Morrison and Forster. Tessa, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Emma, thank you for having me on your podcast. So to open the episode, just to kind of give us a bit of context about who you are, I'd like to ask if you could tell a bit about your story, where you come from, your career journey, from your education choices all the way up to joining the energy sector. Sure. To start at the beginning, I uh, grew up in New Mexico and Arizona, kind of southwest United States. Although that area is kind of well known now for energy, both shale gas and renewables, I was actually not aware of it at all at the time, so it has nothing to do with that. I came from a small town, and I'll admit that perhaps I wasn't very world savvy. This is before kind of global connectivity as we have it now, and information just wasn't as readily available. So I went to undergrad in New Mexico. I studied political science and there's a very weak job market there in New Mexico, I would say, probably especially in that sector. So at least I believed I needed to go to graduate school to have a career. And I believed I needed a scholarship to do that. And I did not have a strong enough background in math, perhaps, to get a scholarship. But I discovered that the law school entrance exam was uh, purely logic based and had no math on it. And I decided that was my best shot and I received a scholarship to Notre Dame Law School. So I did start off with a childhood dream of being a lawyer and and actually I intended to only practice for a few years and then perhaps go back into my goal of politics because I loved current events, I loved international experiences, I wanted to live and travel abroad and, and those were kind of my main goals. So I met an on-campus recruiter for a firm called Skadden Arps, which is a large New York law firm. 
And he was the head of the project finance group. And he just convinced me that if I loved travel and geopolitics, that uh, energy and infrastructure industry was for me. And he was completely right. So I did join Scadden Arps. And I joined for one of my very first transactions was representing the developer of Python, which Python is kind of a, a famous uh, power project in Indonesia uh, that is a project financing kind of case study because it was a very successful project in many ways, but was struggling at the time due to the Asian currency crisis. So it was fascinating and I was completely sold on the industry. I loved energy and infrastructure and I loved the development of new uh, kind of greenfield projects in emerging markets. And so that is what I've done for the last 20 years. I, I mean, there's been a lot of change in the industry. The type of project has changed and uh, my own geographic location has changed a lot. But I've always stuck with kind of the global international energy and infrastructure development. So I moved to New York. I worked at Skadden for five years. And during that time, I worked on a, probably more than seven LNG and petrochemical projects in Qatar. And then later I decided to move to London. So I switched to a law firm called Linklaters, and my practice expanded a bit more globally and into renewables. And I stayed with Linklaters doing the same project development for 15 years. And then two years ago, I moved to Morrison Forster, which is actually a California headquartered law firm, it has a very deep energy practice, but it especially focuses on renewables and ESG. So I have been living and practicing in Singapore now for eight years, and I am particularly focused right now, as everybody is, on the energy transition and kind of green developments. I think it's so interesting that at least for those of us that have joined energy from a non-technical avenue, it's always that the pull of the excitement and moving around and as you say, the geopolitics of it all, I think it does draw you in because it's so exciting and it is so interesting. I also come from a political science background, so I can totally relate to what you're saying. <laughs> and such an exciting space to be in, I think. I mean, your career just proves how broad your work can be, working in LNG and downstream and now moving to renewables and energy transition. There's so much opportunity. So that's awesome. My next question, following on from that, your career has consisted of many different projects, as we just said, spanning so many different sectors. But what is it that keeps you excited about or interested in working in energy looking forward? Right. Without a doubt, it's as you kind of just described. It's how international it is, it's how topical, how political the industry is, and really also how it impacts on every aspect of your life. You know, it's so often uh, it's front page news, the transactions you're working on, the driver of the geopolitics. So that's definitely the love of it. And, and I expect there's many perhaps of the political science background that are in the industry for that reason. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I also love the transactions that you work on. You know, they're often novel, kind of first-in-country projects. And so that usually requires quite a bit understanding of the local markets as well. And sometimes actually the changing of local regulations or practice to make the projects investable or bankable. So I love that aspect of it and how much of it is about kind of risk mitigation, you know, basic problem solving really, but with a, a high degree of kind of knowledge and creativity and innovation now, certainly a lot of innovation now. 
Yeah, as we've already said, so exciting and interesting about working in different cultures and countries and having that opportunity to move around. But I would imagine you do have to be quite flexible and, and willing <laughs> to embrace all of those different contexts. And maybe that's why people who are interested in politics and those kinds of things do move into the sector and for those reasons. And being able to kind of take in information around you, I think, is and contextualize it is a skill that you develop when you study politics or humanities and things like that. So definitely a big pull for me too. <laughs> so you've built your career in two historically male-dominated industries. And I mean, I don't think it's any secret to anyone that both the legal and energy industries have been dominated by a specific profile of person. I mean, the Women's Energy Council podcast is all about discussing those diversity and inclusion issues. So I wanted to ask in your experience in these industries would you say you've experienced any particular challenges as a female executive in these spaces and if so how did you overcome these challenges well the first yes I'm no doubt there have been some challenges I'd love to hear if you get a guest on who says that they haven't had any uh, let me know I'll definitely listen to that one but uh and you flagged, of course, that the legal industry and the energy industry are both male-dominated, and that's certainly correct. But I would also add that the finance industry, of which I am part of, because we finance these projects, and also the Middle East kind of Asian markets that I work in, are also both very male-dominated. So to some extent, I think I have four overlapping circles of predominantly male spheres that I operate in. So needless to say, I'm often uh, spent much of the last 20 years as the only woman in the room, as people say. Um, so yeah, I would say there was different types of challenges and they've changed over the years. I mean, first of all, society has changed and what they deem as acceptable. And so that has certainly changed some of the challenges, but also as I have changed either geographies or in my career and my level of seniority, clearly the challenges change as well. So there's, you know, in the spectrum, I would say there's certainly kind of the more obvious or blatant challenges challenges, you know, ranging from clearly inappropriate comments or behavior from colleagues or, or just very uncomfortable situations. When I was starting off as a very junior lawyer in New York at our law firm, actually, we all lawyers would receive these vouchers in the firm inboxes from various strip clubs in Times Square because it was so common and expected to take your clients there. And um, of course, I never did. But I would certainly say that there have been several occasions where I've had to kind of discreetly excuse myself after post-closing drinks when the night appears to be going in that direction, you know. So it's, there's those kind of more kind of obvious differences. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there are kind of the smaller, less obvious challenges that women might face in the industry, you know. And these are a focus of a lot of discussion right now, as especially as people try to investigate why they're losing women um, as they move up the pipeline. So some of the less obvious challenges are um, things like, you know, reported need for women to kind of work harder and longer to get the same recognition, or um, perhaps women having their ideas or efforts co-opted. And I actually find that these challenges are a lot more impactful and precisely because they're so difficult to identify 
hit and quantify. So I think that these discrete biases might have a, a greater impact long term on a woman's career. So that underselling of women's ideas and contributions, I think, is one of the more important areas to try to combat. Lately, there's been a lot of publicity on in methods to try to change that. And one popular method that you see talked about is just the intentional kind of publicly amplifying of women's contributions, making sure that their ideas are attributed to them. So in meetings when they speak, you know, if their point is later reiterated, you're attributing it back to them. And, and now that I'm aware of these, you know, I often notice in meetings when leaders are intentionally doing this, and it is really powerful. So um, certainly something that I think is meaningful. I will also admit that the challenges as far as changing over my career, when I was more junior, I actually felt that there was probably zero impact on my career for being a woman. In fact, at times, I actually think it was probably a benefit as there are also kind of unconscious biases in favor of women as well. You know, I've heard men that prefer working with women thinking that they're more diligent or more conscientious or more loyal. And I'm not saying that is a good thing. I'm just saying that the biases occur both ways. But as you rise to more senior roles, I think you start to see more of an impact. I think that's such an important point, the difference between the very visual realities of strip clubs and, you know, those (laughs) kinds of very obvious examples. But I think, as you say, as time has gone on, these issues have become a lot more micro in nature and a lot more hidden and invisible. And that's why it's so important that we continue these conversations, because, yes, women have the vote and we can work and we can (laughs) earn our own money and we can do all of those things. And so I think the question is often, but what more needs to be done, you know, but when you actually speak to a woman and you hear of the experiences she has kind of on a day to day that sometimes we don't even realize our issues. And then when you say it out loud, you kind of think, oh, my word, that actually is a problem and can compound as you get higher and higher in leadership. Mm. And that's the problem we're seeing now and facing now and why I think platforms like this are so important where women at your level of executive leadership can say this is still a reality and it is something that we need to keep talking about you know but I loved your example now of attributing the idea to the correct person who had the idea I think that's a very key one in boardrooms so you kind of alluded earlier to your experience having developed and grown in various different places so all over the world in different countries and different cultures so I wanted to ask having worked in those teams and projects all around the globe and currently being based in Singapore could you tell us a bit about those experiences as a female executive across these different contexts well so as I said you know the international aspect is perhaps one of my favorite parts of the job so that of course requires navigating various cultures and often multiple cultures negotiating at the same table at the same time it's so that requires a great deal of awareness and sensitivity to differences between people. And, you know, most of these examples are perhaps well known, but some cultures will be far more confrontational. And so you'll immediately know their position on an issue where 
Other cultures might choose not to reveal their true position until kind of a later point in private sometime. Or in another example would be perhaps uh, cultures where the senior person in the room is the more vocal, whereas in other cultures, it's the junior person that will do more of the speaking. And of course, it's really important to know who is who and to realize when you're negotiating that the junior person who's doing all the speaking might not have any authority to agree anything in that meeting. So these are sophisticated transactions. And then most parties at the table are kind of well aware of these kind of cultural divide and they're accommodating of it. They expect it. You know, so it can be actually harder when it's similar cultures accepting kind of minor differences. I found it harder as an American. I lived in England nine years. And whilst the apparent differences are so minor, people are less mindful that there are differences. And so that can actually create far less tolerance. And so with all of those differences at the table, I would say it can be actually quite difficult to clearly understand, you know, which behaviors are the result of gender differences, me being a woman at the table, or just uh, cultural differences, age differences, experience it, whatever. But I can give kind of a few examples of some clear ones. You know, in many of the Middle Eastern transactions I worked on, some of the more senior businessmen, you know, aren't willing to shake my hand or, you know, be alone in a room with me, as I was often the only woman involved. And in those, even though those are well-known kind of cultural implications to that, it still clearly has an impact when you are trying to say negotiate a transaction with those people. And, and another example I have is this one I have just more find amusing. In one Asian transaction I worked on, every time I spoke at the table, every person in the room who were all men would stare at the table until I was finished talking. And then as soon as I stopped, they would just look back up and keep talking as if I had never spoken, just continue their conversation. But the reason I never figured out why that was happening, like to this day, I do not know. Like perhaps it had nothing to do with me being a woman. Perhaps they just felt I was too junior to be speaking and that, you know, perhaps they were a bit embarrassed for me. You know, perhaps they didn't understand my accent. Like whatever the reason though, you know, it, it, and, and that's just the reality of the world is you can't always know what to attribute behavior to. It did work out in the end, you know, a few days later, a few days of this, <laughs> it became apparent to them that if they wanted the financing, they did need to listen to me and address the points I was raising. And they eventually did do so. And actually, after that point, the next six months of the transaction went quite smoothly. So those are just two examples. So... I do think though that those gray areas where you don't know where the behavior is coming from or why, those can be some of the most undermining and I think create the self-doubts if you don't deal with them with the right perspective, really. Because it can be easy to get a chip on your shoulder and you know assume that every invitation you don't receive or every conversation you're excluded from is because of your gender. And obviously that's not the case, you know. Uh, there's plenty of men that feel that they don't get sufficient recognition or aren't appreciated. And so it can really be a nuanced issue and, and difficult to interpret. And kind of as I alluded to before, I think it's more difficult as you increase in seniority, because as a senior executive, you're not just kind of executing the transaction, 
you now need to have that kind of close network. You know, I say be, be a trusted advisor, you know, the person they pick up the call to when things are tough. But you need to be that to a group of almost exclusively senior men. And that can be especially difficult in, a, in an international context. So I guess one last example, I was considered once for a promotion, which would have required relocating to the Middle East. And there were serious conversations about whether my company would be able to develop the business relationships, in particular with senior oil and gas executives in the region, if they had a woman as the key representative. And it leads to a serious ethical question, you know, is it wrong for an employer to fail to promote someone simply because they assume that their clients are biased and will discriminate against that person, you know. I mean, I think the answer ultimately is yes, but it's important to consider also the negative implications of sending a woman into a region and position where they're being kind of set up to fail as well. So some tricky issues that in the end weren't addressed at all because the company my employer simply identified a male candidate that they said was better suited. And, uh, you know, and that kind of neatly demonstrates how often these issues are just handled um, without actually addressing them. Those are very powerful examples. And again, as I said earlier, it's so good to hear what you've experienced, you know, in your life. These are examples from your own career that just show the difficulties we're still facing in this industry and in the world, really. And I think that is such a tough discussion to have that you can see the arguments on both sides but I think what's important is that we are discussing it you know that there is the conversation of okay yes it might be challenging but are we just making assumptions as you said about our clients biases is it actually going to be the reality once you get there just having that conversation I think and the open communication between employer and employee is also really important and having you be a part of that decision making process and saying well if I choose to go there you're not really setting me up to fail because I want to go and I want to fly you know I mean that's just an example but like kind of having that open discussion I think is really important but that example of everyone looking at the table that must have been so disconcerting for you (laughs) I can't imagine how do you even act in that situation (laughs) it was a bit awkward yeah but you pushed through and you managed to have a successful transaction in the end so (laughs) speaks to your resilience so we've discussed the challenges and we all know that they exist and we're working towards opposing those challenges but there's also opportunities I think particularly as we look forwards we look towards the energy transition Um, we all know that the rate of change requires collaboration like we've never seen before in the energy industry and I think really opens up opportunities for women to reposition themselves so I wanted to ask in your sector where do you foresee those growth opportunities becoming available for women to reposition themselves for participation particularly in this new era of energy transition Yes, so definitely. I mean, the increased focus on green energy, renewables, and ESG does seem to have brought a lot more women into the industry or into the forefront of the industry. 
And I am not quite sure why this is. I'm thrilled to see it, though. I mean, there's a part of me that is a bit regretful that uh, women never did seem to crack the kind of old school oil and gas industry in significant numbers. But I'm heartened to see that, that with the energy transition, there seems to be a lot more women entering the field. That's a fairly well-known thing change right now. One area of opportunity that I would want to mention that I don't think people in our industry focus on as much, but is this huge movement pushed to have women act as independent directors on the boards of uh, private and public companies. And um, I think that this is a really exciting opportunity for women, in particular, because this is the right time. You know, the timing is right here. Many boards are scrambling to get women as they kind of respond to new regulations requiring them to do so. But above and beyond the regulation requiring them to, a lot of the corporates are just finding themselves under pressure, especially from shareholder activism, to look at the diversity and inclusiveness of their board. Um, So I think there's a lot of opportunity there now that is kind of notoriously difficult for women to get on that first board. And most boards do want you to have experience. There's a bit of a catch-22 there. But as far as, you know, kind of pushing a large number of women, almost catapulting them up into senior leadership positions in many organizations, I think this could be a significant catalyst for change. So I, I participate with an organization called Women Executive on boards. And it's a network of kind of senior executive women who all participated in this. There's a Harvard executive program that's focused on increasing the number of women on boards. So those women use their own networks and expertise, essentially solely dedicated to helping other women achieve their board roles. The first board board role being kind of the most significant, but follow-on board roles as well. And I think it's a great example of, um, you know, people talk about leaving the ladder down, not pulling it up after you and helping others up the ladder. And, uh, and I, I just think that's a really inspiring and, and an area where, you know, a lot of women aren't looking if they haven't been kind of made aware of it and that I wish more women would explore because it's also often a step that you can take while still, you know, employed in your day job, depending on what your day job is. But also boards are often looking at diversity, including in age and experience now. And so it's no longer that you need to be incredibly great hair and senior in order to do this. Yeah, I think that's really important, that message of putting yourself out there, knowing that those opportunities are are opening up and then going looking for them, I guess, as women at that level of leadership, looking for that first board position. I guess on the individual side, it's putting yourself out there, equipping yourself, looking for those training opportunities, like you just mentioned, the Harvard training for executives, I think looking for those kinds of things to really equip themselves for those board positions when they come around and I think speaks to a point that's often raised in conversations I've had with many women of sponsorship we talk a lot about mentorship at a younger age where that's really important to have someone to empower you and guide you in your career but having that sponsorship person is also just as important or people to talk about you when you're not in the room and put you forward or put your name forward or even to be on the lookout for positions like that to tell you about them you know it's building up that network I think we underestimate 
how powerful that can be when people know your name and know what you're looking to do. And it's difficult, I think, sometimes to put ourselves in those positions. It's difficult to put yourself out there. But I think that really is key for women to really grab hold of these opportunities. So some great points. But I think you kind of alluded to one practical group or network that you've worked in already but I wanted to ask because I like to focus on the practical and we've acknowledged there are challenges we've acknowledged that we need to continue fighting the good fight for diversity and inclusion in energy but I like to use the resource of the women that come on this podcast who have walked that journey already and built these successful careers and asking what worked for you, what projects or practices, whether it was a person who was just particularly good at finding good talent or whether it was an actual initiative at an old organization, any practical projects or initiatives that you've seen or heard of in your career that have worked and that others might want to emulate in their own workplaces. Sure. Yeah. Actually, well, I think I could almost flip that around and talk about uh, the very first kind of women's group that I ever, or women's initiative that I ever participated in was perhaps a great case study of what not to do. And so <laughs> I like to focus on it because it's actually, uh, they grappled with some key kind of three key-ish areas that I think a lot of organizations do when they start to try to promote women. And so I think it's good to highlight the best and worst practices. Um, First is really the ideological approach that you take when looking at, you know, how to promote women forward. You know, in this organization, the very first one I participated in, uh, they were new and, and as they launched, they really clearly decided that they needed to focus on fixing the uh, women, these were lawyers, inside the firm so that the women could be more successful in the organization. So clearly taking a starting position that they wanted to retain women, they were going to launch an initiative to try to retain more women up the pipeline, but then de facto acknowledging that they thought that it was that the women themselves were not performing in the right way and that's why they were not succeeding. And so their initial initiative was to offer, offer or maybe require, assertiveness training to the entire population of female lawyers. Not not the men. And I thought, and this is not that long ago. Uh, this is not hearkening back all that long ago. But you and I got mixed. Uh, and I obviously spoke my piece about it. But it was passed. That was decided. And I think it's really an ironic study in the lack of kind of EQ and the lack of self-awareness of the women in that room. Because the room was chock full of some pretty assertive women, you know, myself included. Like, you don't get to be senior people inside of a law firm generally without feeling, you know, the ability to say your piece. So, but somehow they had just taken upon themselves to decide that the younger generation of women must have gone, you know, soft and needed some pushing. And if they only could fix that, the women would be more successful and stay. And that this program, what was going to kind of inspire this younger generation to stay at the firm. So, uh, you know, I kind of clear from my commentary here, but obviously my opinion, the better approach is to not start out with the assumption that women need to change to succeed, but to rather look at the organization organization and see what needs to change at the organization in order for it to be an attractive place to retain for women's work to retain those women. And so I say the second 
decision that came up and this one might be a bit more controversial but i feel that the group decided to exclude males in the organization there was going to be an exclusively female organization i understand why they did that but i personally find that to be a mistake you know that some of the best programs and some of the most successful programs who made it an appoint really to get senior buy-in and senior investment in the participation in the group and in the success of the group and the fact is that in most companies um senior buy-in, those seniors are male. So you need male buy-in. And in fact, it also sends the wrong message, you know, that it's sending the message that diversity and inclusiveness is something that really only women and the otherwise diverse should care about, you know, which is clearly not the case and not the message you want to be sharing in your organization. And then finally, the last and most ridiculous error, which then I probably decided no longer to participate, but they became so focused on kind of externally promoting the fact that they had launched this women's initiative that they literally forgot to invite their own members to their inaugural events. It became client or PR marketing exercise. And, and so clearly, if that is your driving motivator for launching a group, then you're not going to have a very successful group. It might be successful for the purposes that you intend. It might have the impact of, you know, generating a lot of good PR for your organization, but it's probably not going to make the women inside your organization feel any better about their position. So, you know, currently I am a partner at Morrison and Forrester, and, and I have to say here that I am quite proud of their track record. So, you know, yes, they have, and, you know, I could talk at length about kind of the great programs they have and kind of best in class initiatives to help promote women and diversity. But I think it's more important to talk about the numbers. You know, MoFo has um, 24 women acting in firm leadership roles or on the board of directors, and they have another 13 women that serve as the head of the practice heads. And so, yeah, it's great to launch initiatives. But I think at this point in our history, successful programs need to be able to show the results. We should be talking about numbers and success and quantitative factors now, rather than just, you know, the um, policy initiative and the good intentions. I totally agree with you. I think that, in my mind, is kind of the next step in this diversity and inclusion issue is we've acknowledged it's a problem and everyone has agreed we need to do something to solve it. But I think the next step, as you say, is, is really measuring that progress because you don't know how far away you are from achieving real equality until you know where you're at currently. And I mean... I would like to say to everyone that this example that this has given us of a women's group is definitely not the way to go. <laughs> we all agree that that is horrendous that you had that experience. And I think just points so clearly to the continued existence of this problem. I mean, the fact that the first solution was to change the women instead of changing the organization is just your first red flag, I think. And particularly that that change was expected to be an assertiveness. I would imagine that <laughs> female executive lawyers are probably some of the most assertive people <laughs> in the industry. So I think it just goes to show, you know, we all suffer from being human ourselves. And, you know, the people that launched that program did it with good intentions by and large, you know, but we all have our own biases and, and our own history and how we expected things or saw things when we came up the ladder and so yeah the difficulty with this issue is just how you know kind of human and sticky all all of it is yeah 
for sure. But it's great to hear that at your current organization, everything seems to be going a lot better than that previous experience. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that for your sake. So we've come to our final question already. I think there's been some really interesting insights in our discussion so far. So thank you so much for that. But now turning finally to you, and I like to champion the women on our podcast. That's the whole point of the Women's Energy Council <laughs> podcast is to really highlight the women in our network and all of the amazing things that you all have achieved. So I like to just end off the conversation by asking if you could choose an achievement in your career that you are most proud of what would it be this is a hard question i would say that i'm perhaps most proud that i have achieved what i wanted in life and in my career without changing too much who i am or kind of failing to be genuine hopefully i mean of course everybody should be open to change uh, the right kind of change and should grow constantly in life but i think there's a fine balance between kind of taking on feedback in a positive way and adjusting yourself to make yourself a more complete and happy person versus taking on that feedback and changing who you are in a way that feels disingenuous and that shouldn't be required in order to be successful and happy and so you know sometimes you get feedback and it isn't clear whether that's kind of good advice or not, you know. And uh, I'll give you an example, just one comment that, that I've received more than once in life, I would say, is that I am, you know, so positive and smiley, but with the kind of implication, stated and unstated, that I would be seen more senior and kind of taken more seriously if I was less outwardly kind of friendly. And, you know, that might be true. They might be right. And it's certainly something that I had to consider. You know, I do know many successful women um, and men who portray themselves as very stern and serious. And for all I know, perhaps they are perceived as having a lot more gravitas. Maybe there has been an impact to me in my career for being so smiley. I mean, it's a podcast. You can't see how much I'm smiling, but uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you know, so I don't know that. Um, so you just have to make your decision. But what I do know is that I would feel a lot less genuine. And I would probably be a lot less happy myself if I tried to every day kind of lock down and, uh, and appear as stern as possible. So I chose to disregard that feedback, rightly or wrongly. Nobody will ever know. But I think that that's the ultimate success, you know, that you can get from a career is kind of feeling comfortable and confident as yourself. And uh, so, you know, there have been bumps along the way. And I'm definitely not saying that I've always gotten the balance right. But ultimately, I'm happy with myself and I'm happy with my life. And I think that that's the best achievement that you can do, especially in women in these types of industries. So. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you disregarded that feedback because I think it's so important for us to really embrace our own leadership styles and our own personalities. And I think all of this diversity and inclusion rhetoric is based on the assumption that everyone has their place and everyone is important regardless of who you are or what your personality is or how smiley you are, you have a place and you are important in some way and you bring something to the table that other people 
might not. And I think if we embrace that assumption and we say this is what the diversity and inclusion movement is predicated on, then we have to embrace our differences. We have to embrace what makes us individual. And I think although, as you say, we'll never know if disregarding that advice had any effect, but I think it definitely would have had a positive effect because I don't personally believe you can be the most successful or achieve the most in your life if you're not being yourself. I think you're not operating to 100% if you're kind of walking away from who you really are. So I definitely think it's contributed to getting you to where you are today. (laughs) And I'm also a smiley person. So I see that. I will have to deal. I will follow in your footsteps, hopefully, and I will (laughs) also continue the smiley female leader position. (laughs) Exactly. But Tessa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. It's been really lovely having you on the podcast. And I think, as I said, a lot of really practical examples that you've given to really show that these issues are still very important. And there are women who have experienced these issues that are in executive positions today and it just shows we have to continue having these conversations and continue fighting the good fight and working together to really show that women do have a place regardless of how smiley or unassertive we are. I'm not tagging myself forever as smiley in your mind. I wanted to say thank you. And uh, and also thank you to the Energy Council for running these podcasts and this program because I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing that they're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tessa. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Tune in next time to hear more valuable insights from others leading transformation in the energy industry.